You're listening to Inside the View with Michael Rosenbaum. I just wanted to do that because it's Halloween, you know, month. You know, it's my favorite month, favorite time of the year. Really? Yeah, it is. Uh, as you can see, behind you are my Evil Dead poster, Lost Boys, Fright Night, uh, the Thing poster behind me that I just watched last night with the horror Zoom group. You know, I have a horror Zoom group. Mm-hmm. We watched The Fly, and then, um, so we vote on movies. Mm-hmm. And then, so everybody picks three, and then everybody has to pick three of other people's choices for horror movies for that week. So, so there's ultimately five weeks in October because we kind of use November third, mm-hmm. whatever. It's like we do five weeks, so everybody gets pretty much a movie that they want to see. And um, so we had a pretty good selection. But uh, last night was the fly in the thing, so I was up to one. I, I just was so happy because I love those movies. They were so good. I haven't seen either. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> But love Halloween, and uh, I hope you guys listened to last week's episode because it was uh, incredibly intense and insightful. If you haven't, again, go back and listen to Sarah Edmondson. If you're here for Kevin Smith, great, but uh, hopefully if you like this interview, you'll stick around and listen to other interviews. I think you'll you'll dig them. Um, but Sarah Edmondson, you know, Allison Mack was on Smallville with me, and she joined this thing that became this cult, and... Uh, so he talked about that, and this woman, Sarah, who's really amazing, um, talked about getting branded and all this stuff. So it was a, a really interesting week, and it was you know a lot of press and things like that. And uh, you know, it's 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 nice to hear from peers and just people around that shoot you a text and go, "Dude, I listened to that interview. It's really good." I'm like, "Well, listen, can you listen to others? Can you subscribe for fuck's sake? God damn it! God damn it! I think that's the thing, you know." You, uh, People people listen to the episode. They oh, I, I want to listen to that person, yeah. Kevin Smith fans, which is great. Yeah. I'm glad you're here. Uh, they might have just fast forward. I don't want to hear this guy. <laughs> but uh, we had a lot of great stuff to say on the on the podcast. Uh, just a few things. If you're here and yet you, you don't uh, subscribe or you don't uh, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, it's really easy. It's at uh, Inside of You Podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Inside of You Pod on the Twitter and. Uh, Thank you to Westwood One for their support. We joined forces with Westwood One about two months ago, and things are uh, things are going well. Very happy with them, and they're working hard. And uh, so, to all the girls and and boys over at Westwood One, mm-hmm. I really uh, appreciate you. Uh, you know who you are. Uh, also, the uh, lots of new merch at the Inside of You online store. We got new flip flops, tumblers, like badass tumblers that like you know you could throw off a building and they'd still be all right. Tank tops and mugs, autograph mugs and wine glasses, beach towels, all that shit. Uh, Rosie Pants One, R O S E Y Pants P A N T S One for fifteen percent off at the Inside of You online store. Mm-hmm. Just for you guys listening today. Also, Stage It is next weekend. Rob and I are singing some tunes. It's a Halloween special. Uh, we're gonna be dressed up. We're gonna dress up. We got some. I'm decorating the downstairs. Um, we're going to play some music. We might play monster mash, <laughs> some things like that. Uh, we're excited about it. We're working on the album and uh, great prizes like zooms winner gets, uh, their choice of a song that we'll play. We'll videotape and send it back to you. You get a zoom and anybody who bids over, I think it's 3,500 notes, whatever that is, uh, get an automatic zoom from us, uh, from us after the show. So uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for the continuing listen. We got some great guests. In fact, next week's guest, it's uh, it's going to be a big one. I'm not saying who it is. I'm not saying what happened, but uh, this person's coming on here to exclusively tell us some some good news or bad news or bad and good news. But 
whatever is newsworthy breaking news breaking news and uh it's nice when people you really respect and admire and just uh you know fans of the podcast uh they they call you and they say i want to come on and talk about something and you're like really mm. so that's cool uh reminding you all to vote whoever you vote for it's just important that your voice gets heard and you know there's nothing worse than people sitting at home going bitching about everything and not doing anything about it so you know what you can't bitch if you hate what's going on or if you hate the current president or if you hate biden or if you and you don't vote you it's like just shut up then vote down ballot your yeah. community is important too just zip it up man just do do all the voting yeah i'm voting i just, voted you voted i voted already yeah. yeah so just vote whoever you vote for I, I love you i don't give a shit vote fucking vote <laughs> all right let's get inside this guy it's funny because I, I didn't think he liked me for a while because he, you know uh we talked about it because i left smallville he says yeah, i left smallville but i i I did leave Smallville, but it was there was reasons, and the, you know my contract ended. But we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about some stuff that I don't think he's ever talked about, um, and uh, I really found him interesting. And you know, I feel like I, f I I have a new friend. A lot of times I interview someone, I'm like, it goes well, and I just feel like there's a connection, and that does happen. But with Kevin Smith, I felt like um, I just we I felt like we liked each other. He was texting me after. He's like, on the show, you'll hear him anytime you want me back, and, and if you guys want him back. Listen to this. Tell me what you think. Please subscribe and uh, email all your friends the links and uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, of course, uh, YouTube. We're all over YouTube. Where you can watch these videos that Ryan edits that are really well edited and fun to watch. So check that out. And let's get inside of Kevin Smith. It's my point of view. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. How are you? How are you? I'm doing all right. You look great. Oh, I'm trying to stay alive. Um, <laughs> what, so, is that a jerk poster behind you? Oh, what hell yeah. Signed by Steve Martin. The fuck? How? Well, I did a movie called uh, Bringing Down the House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, I wore a bad wig in it because I was bald from Smallville. But he was so awesome, man. I've talked about it before, but. I was at lunch sitting at a table and he'd come up and go, is this seat taken? And he'd sit right next to me and tell me about Smallville. So at the end, I brought him a bunch of tapes. That's a, that's a pretty good Steve Martin. I'd, I'd never done a Steve Martin. It was just the essence of a Steve Martin. But um, I brought that poster on the last day I was done. I go, hey, man, I'm like that. I don't know. Most actors don't. I talk about this, by the way, to every guest. And I'm like can you sign this poster for me, man? He's like, of course, come on in. And he played some banjo in his trailer, and he was just a delight, man. Uh, you got to hear him play banjo up there. Yeah. Have you met him? Never. I saw him years ago, the Montreal Film Festival, and he was getting the same year he was there with a movie called The Simple Twist of Fate, and which was kind of a remake of Silas Marner, if I remember correctly. And he, you know, they like festivals when, when somebody's in town, they're like, hey, we're going to give you a Lifetime Achievement Award. So they gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award or something like that. And they had the press conference in a mall. So he was like in front of the fountains and shit. They had press conference. So people in the mall were watching. And we didn't know there was a press conference going on. Me and Mosher were just crossing through the mall. And all of a sudden we saw, like, they were like, ladies and gentlemen, Steve Martin. And they brought him out and shit. And he just seemed so somber. Like he was so not, you know, the dude that we grew up watching. He was so like, um, I remember somebody heckled. I mean, it wasn't even a heckle, barely. They were like, Steve, get a job. 
And he goes, you know, I'm like, uh, what's what comedy gold is going to come from here? And he was just like, thank you. That was it. So I remember thinking early on, like, comedy genius, but doesn't feel the need to turn it on or keep it on, I guess. Isn't that's a rarity that you could have that that strength, or I guess it's Steve Martin, but like, you know. I couldn't, I'm not that reserved. I couldn't, if someone, I, I don't imagine myself with an audience, no matter how sad I was or how somber I was, I'd have to turn it on. And, but he could get away with it. But like, I even like, were, were you like, this is uncomfortable? It wasn't that I was uncomfortable, but I was just like, oh my God, like this is the first time I'd ever seen a version of the Pagliacci or, you know, fucking syndrome where the funniest guy is maybe not, you know, feeling all that funny all the time. And I'm certainly not like saying he was fucking depressed. Like <laughs> he was just like, you know, and again, I wasn't engaged with him. It was from the second floor looking down, but it was not like what I assumed a Steve Martin anything would be like. If he has, you know, 200 people staring at him, I just assumed like every entertainer, you know. <laughs> you turn it on. Instincts kick in. So now it could be that he was there with, a simple twist of fate, which was more of a dramatic film and stuff. And it could be that he was like getting lifetime achievement or something, but yeah, it was, it was, I'll, I'll never, I mean, to this day, whenever I think of Steve Martin up until that moment, anytime I thought of Steve Martin, I was like, Oh, all of me, the jerk comic genius. Right. The, you know, amigos. Uh, and, and wild and crazy guy, the album, which I listened to incessantly in the seventies. And then every, you know, Steve Martin thought I have after that, it's just like that poor man. He just did not want to be in Montreal. <laughs> sitting in the middle of a mall <laughs> talking about his career. Well, I met uh, Jim Carrey. It was at a, a beach house. You know, the what day was that he, like? He was really nice, but again, he wasn't like, you know, he was like, hey there, how are you today? Alrighty then. He wasn't doing that. He was just kind of like, hey, how are you? Okay. And, and to be yeah. fair, like, I bet you when people meet us, like, you know, you don't give them fucking Lex and I don't give them Silent Bob, but like... <laughs> These cats are too larger than life. Right. Who like, you know, they've played roles in movies and those those two roles that I mentioned are, are famous roles and shit like that. But we're not known for going around doing our thing in public. I especially don't shut up. Like that's that's the characters. And thing. I'm not that smart. So I don't <laughs> so when I talk, people aren't going, Wow, he didn't use the word colloquialism. <laughs> you know, or also like fucking sinister. Like that guy knows all the angles and shit. Dude, I think you know. I, I not, I'm not talking. This is about you. I'm not talking about me. But I just remember when I got the role, every one of my friends, my friend Matt, I had a little gathering and celebratory thing, and everybody's laughing. And Matt's got his pants down. He's got this Lex Luthor doll shoved in his ass, <laughs> and it kind of it was humbling. But I was like, oh, they just don't bother. Like you. Dude, they're gonna fire you. You're not Lex Luthor. I'm like, I could. I'm an actor. I can do this. And it just was like, you know, it was, it was, it was definitely daunting. It was definitely a scary what time. You, what have you done right before that, where they tapped <laughs> you? I know, I know, this is more about me than you, but I'm still fascinated because that's my world. So you're talking about a show. Who is it? Miles and. Alan Miles, Al Goff, Miles Moore. Owen Miles? Yeah. I, still, to this day, one of the only regrets I've ever had in my career, and some people would be like, Jersey Girl? You know, fucking yoga hosers? The list is long. The only regret, I, uh, one of the only regrets I have in my career is um, they sent me, like, a faxed letter. That's how far back this goes. Oh, yeah. When they were working on, on Smallville, Goan and Millar. And they were like, hey, man, like, 
come out and direct one of these. And that was when I was like, I, I just direct what I write. I could never direct somebody else's script. That's insane. So I never went. And Muse, Jason, yeah. fucking, as you well know, loves Smallville. He loved it when <laughs> it was happening. He still fucking loves it to this day. Uh. So the notion of like now having done like CW shows, I'm like, oh my God, like I could have gotten started on that way earlier like a decade maybe more earlier than right. like when i finally directed a flash and it honestly might have changed the course of my career not that i'm like oh i missed out on it but like if you're directing like commercial tv and and you know it's as i found with cw it's a wonderful little environment where nobody's like you can only uh you can only achieve. You can't really fail in that environment. They won't let you make a bad show because they make one every week. Right. So they know how to do it. Right. So the only only good things ever came from like directing those shows, like you know, especially it was coming in the wake of like yoga hosers, and so a lot of people were unkind. So that first Flash episode I did, people were just like, "Hey, he, he fucking seems to know what he's doing," or something like that. Welcoming. So they were welcoming. They were, and also appreciative of like. You know, me the whole time going, it wasn't me. Uh, Zach Stentz wrote an amazing script. I just, like, brought it to fucking life as best I could. But the crew does it every week. I'm the only thing that was different this week. So trust me, it's not, like, necessarily just me. But I realized if I had done Smallville, that would have started 10 to 15 years earlier. Wow. And who knows? I Like, I might be directing fucking superhero movies right now, which is not something that I ever aspired to or dreamed about like right. a lot of people are always like when are you gonna make a marvel movie i'm like number one they're too smart to give me money number two <laughs> that that job is too big for the likes of me like the cw shows i'm sure it was this way on uh and probably less when you guys were doing small but what were your episodes like six day weeks five day weeks 10 we had eight days on smallville we had it was a one hour and it was like all these oh, luxurious but it was these special effects that they hadn't really done it was very you know it was it was brand new. It was, uh, it was just, it was just changed the game in a lot of ways for TV. And so we had eight days of episodes and then two for additional, like, you know, stunts and all that stuff. So they were, yeah, it was, we were up there 10 months a year, but you're right though. When you said, uh, it is a family, I'm not saying anybody could direct TV because it's not true. You have to I, I personally believe anyone could direct TV. If, if, as long as you walk on, maybe not a pilot, maybe not season one. But if you walk onto a season two set of a show that's up and running, everybody knows what the fuck they're doing, like anybody can direct. Really, it's just a matter of going action and cut. Everyone else does their jobs really well. Like I rarely ever walked over, if ever, to give somebody like directing tip or acting tips. Like my direction, like we'd roll a take and then I'd go over and be like, that's fucking awesome. And then I go back to the chair. Like, and you so give presents. I heard like lots of things where like you're the best guy on set, you'll give presents to people, you'll give... But like, but I think that's also part. It's fun. But you're, you're look. You're, I like the self-deprecation. We we I do it. But like, you know what you're doing. You've done some great things. Just because you think you have done some, we've all done. Oh well, we, look at this. This did, got me attention, and then I did this, and then we have this that didn't do well or it bombed. I always say, if somebody has one hit movie, they've got one hit movie. If they've got one thing that I liked, I go, they're great. I don't care if they have ten pieces of shit. I remember before I had a career back when I was just like a film enthusiast, you know, somebody that dreamed about making movies. 
Um, you know, Spike Lee had made, he started with She's Gotta Have It, then he did School Days, and his third film was Do the Right Thing. And Do the Right Thing is an astounding achievement that's still one of my five favorite films of all time and still holds up today, even more now today, oddly enough, than, than when they made the movie. Or it's just as relevant today as in 1989, which is a sad statement on the country. So I love that movie. Um, a couple years later, man, like he did something, like, I don't know, maybe it was Girl 6 or something that a bunch of people were kind of like crapping on. And my whole thing was like, hey, man, that dude may do the right thing. Like he gets a pass forever. Right. And, and right. then I had a career. Thankfully, one day I heard somebody in the depths of my career when I was doing shit nobody liked, I heard somebody go like, well, at least he made clerks. And I was like, Yes. The do the right thing defense. It's going to come in my favor as well. <laughs> but that's a healthy way to look at it. And, we, and of course, when the shit's piling up and we're bombing and we're like, you know, well, it's, it's, it's how you look at it. We look at it differently then. You were probably not as optimistic, were you? You probably were like you hit rock bottom. I was terrified that, like, look, the first movie we made was Clerks. And I'll be the first to tell you, we were insanely overpraised. We were the flavor of the year, not even just the month. And people said such nice things about that movie and stuff. Mall rats, polar opposite experience. Bunch of, I mean, now people really like the movie. It's aged well. But when it came out, critics like shit in its mouth. It did no money at the box office. The poster, which Drew Struzan painted in his fucking classic, as far as I'm concerned, was confusing to people because they were like, is this a magazine? Like, it looked like the cover of a comic book. But, you know, most people didn't get that comic book culture wasn't fucking that big at that time and shit so i think to a lot of people like oh this must be a new magazine coming out called mall rats or something <laughs> like that so like everything that could have went wrong went wrong and i remember being like we're over you know there was a moment i was so early in my career where i was like universal gave us five million to make this movie it only made two million do i owe them three million dollars because i got that kind of fucking scratch so <laughs> That's a, an instance of me going like, we're fucking finished. Like you could find interviews from me with me at that time. Like there's a premier magazine quote where, you know, I was like, I'm, I've spent the summer like, uh, or I've spent the last two weeks. Cause I guess Mallrats came out like in the beginning of the fall or something like that. And I said, I spent the last two weeks, uh, curled up in the fetal position in a dark bedroom with a stack of bad reviews in one hand and a shotgun in the other and stuff. And, um, I, you know, it seemed like I'm done, you know, chasing Amy was a hail Mary for me because I was like, we're finished. Like fucking nobody's going to hire me. That was it. One hit wonder. The sophomore jinx was the most terrifying thing in the world to young filmmakers. First time filmmakers, man, if you were lucky enough to get attention for your first film, then you had to run the gauntlet of what people would make of your second film. And in my case, people made nothing of it. They were like, Oh, I remember the reviews, like, uh, what's his name? Kenny Turan said in the LA times, he goes, if, if, uh, AFI or Sundance ever offer a course on what not to do as a second feature, mall rats should be at the heart of the curriculum. And that was the nicest part of it. Like all the reviews were very dismissive. And the general tone was, we put this guy here with clerks and this is the shit he makes. Fuck these Sundance kids, like give them no money or whatever. So <laughs> <laughs> I, that movie haunted me forever for about 10 years. Then 10 years into my career, 10 years after Mallrats, suddenly, like, everything changed. Suddenly, people had watched it on home video or on HBO or for years. 
And I was the one, I always remember that it flopped. And I would say that to people. I was like, oh my God, that movie tech. Where, you know, people go, I love mall rats. I'd be like, where were you in 95? We could have used your help. In the fucking tech. <laughs> like, it couldn't have tanked. It can't be, no way. It's got to be a huge box office success because I have it on DVD. And I'm like, those two things are not right. necessarily equitable and whatnot. So you realize you're the one that carries around the failure. Like you wear, uh, you know, just like Jacob Marley, we wear the chains we forge in life. Ain't nobody out there still remembers that fucking mall rats tanked except me. Maybe some, I'm not even anyone at Universal anymore. They're all fucking gone at this point yeah. and changed so many times. So there was a time I was terrified. And then 10 years later, and even up till this moment in time, mall rats is like one of the movie, oddly, the movie that almost killed my career is the one that has kept it fucking buoyed. Isn't that something? Years. Like Stan Lee reading the script for mall rats and Captain Marvel with you know was doing his lines out loud was like everything that to me was the moment where i was like you know what like because i remember like being there when people were like you shouldn't have done that maybe you shouldn't have made that movie shit and that's the worst thing in the world to hear right like oh man second guessing your artistic statement your statement your your you know um, testimony if you will but like when stan lee you know was was doing the line you know trust me true believer in Captain Marvel, that for me was graduation day, where I'm like, this motherfucking movie that everyone left for dead in the goddamn fucking hot sun and shit survived and like, you know, lives and has this weird fucking modicum of respect to it and shit. So you never know what the thing's gonna be. But I, I do often wonder if I had jumped into Smallville, like when they had written me that fax, what would the career look like today probably the same because like i'm overly dedicated to making kevin smith movies because they got a lot of people make those comic book movies ain't nobody wants to make a kevin smith movie but kevin smith so i i often feel like i would have gravitated this way like there but there were a lot of opportunities to do something better different than what people assume i've done with my career like i remember at one point they were like you direct goodwill hunting and you know i was like i, I love this fucking script but I, I, honestly I will turn to Ben and Matt every fucking scene and be like, what'd you see when you wrote this? All right, let's just shoot that. Because I, back then I was like, I'm a writer, director, capital W and all the way through, lowercase d all the way through. I fancy myself more a writer than a director and still kind of do to this day. But you do anything for fucking 26 years, even if you do it haphazardly, you wind up getting better at it. You know, like, so I have gotten kind of better with age which is nice you, yeah but it's never never been my thing the writing is always the more important but do you feel like now you really think because we could sit there and tell ourselves like i don't even read reviews i don't give a shit is there a point in your life and when was it where you just were like hey man i'm just gonna do what i do i'm gonna do what i do i'm gonna get things made because i love movies i'm gonna get people people will like them or they won't i can't i can't be happy or unhappy based on an outcome of uh the box office it's a great question. And and to throw out the disclaimer before I head into it and whatnot, these are fucking first world problems, kids. Like when, when you've gotten to a place that you're trying to get to, um, that's everything. And you never have any right to bitch. That being said, maintaining that is far more difficult. Nobody tells you that when you start out, you know, because you're so full of piss and vinegar. You're like, I just want to express myself. I'll be a director. I'll be an actor or whatever fuck. Nobody tells you, like, if you're lucky enough to get picked where they put your shit, you know, in front of the public, then you got to do it again. Then you got to do it again. 
Then you got to do it again. And you got to keep doing it until you drop fucking dead. And, you know, oh, or you, you get kicked out the club. So it's like a, anyone comes up with a magic trick is an amazing thing. You know, sleight of hand and shit. Like, you know, motherfuckers like Jim be at a party and be like, what's that? And they pull a quarter out from your Clerks is me pulling a quarter out from behind somebody's ear. And they're like, oh, that's clever. Well done. And I thought that would have been it. Like, once I made one of those, then, you know, fucking, hey, there's my magic trick. But then, you know, they're like, all right, what's next? And for the last 26 years, they've been going like, what's next? So if I want to stay in the game, you got to keep making shit. You got to maintain. You got to have longevity. And that's the thing nobody prepares you for. Nobody tells you like, hey, man, how long you want to be in this fucking thing? You know, I wish my shit was like a TV season where I broke it up into seasons where I'm like, you know, after 10 seasons, I'm out or something like that. But with no defined exit point, because I don't even have a defined exit point based on whether the movies did good or bad. Because at the end of the day, I can just shoot a lower budget movie, you know, like as was the case with Chasing Amy. Marats came out, didn't do well, cost five million to make, didn't do well. We went and made Chasing Amy for 250 grand. That went on to make like 12 million. So I've, you know, I'm, I'm not like Chris Nolan in many fucking ways, any critic will tell you, but one of those ways is like, Chris is always like, we need as much money as possible to do this practically and do it right because cinema is forever and shit. And I'm the guy come from indie film who's just like, that's good enough. That's, that'll get the job done. Good enough is the only way I've gotten this far in my career. If I was striving for perfection, you never even want to see in Clerks, for Christ's sakes. Look at Clerks. It's absolutely imperfect. But my whole career was predicated on an absolutely imperfect, sloppy first effort. So what did that teach me? For the next 10 years of my career, I was like, doesn't have to be better than Clerks. Like, if they'll sit through Clerks, they'll watch this. And because wow. of that, I never really pushed myself or have pushed myself. Every once in a while, there's like Tusk or some such shit. But like, visually speaking, I kept shit real fucking simple. It was only after directing as many years as I have where you're just like, well, maybe I can, maybe I can grow. Maybe I could try this. I've been around long enough. Like, and I'm, this is not, I don't want this to be misread as like, I'm bored. I fucking love what I do for a living. But at a certain point, it's like, you know, after the first five movies, every movie's a joy to make, don't get me wrong. But after the first five movies, it's like, I, I know what the experience of movie making is. That's why when podcasting happened, like, I've been podcasting for 13 years now. We started in 2007 because that was an art form that was like, what? Like, I don't need millions of dollars. I can just, I can fucking invite my friends over and sit in my office and smoke weed and chit chat. That's the art form for me. So, like, that, you know, even though at a point where I was like, ah, you know, movies, like, there was a point where I retired. I literally retired after like Red State. I was like, I'm done. Like, this is it. This is the last movie I made. I'm good. Bye-bye. And you really believe that. You were done. You were like, I'm fuck this. I did not even in a fuck this kind of way, but I'm just like, you know, I got nothing left to say. That was my point. I was like, you know, let a young person say some shit. I don't really have that much. You've seen every trick I can do. Red State felt like a high water mark where I'm like, this don't look like nothing I've ever done before. If I took my name off that movie, not a single motherfucker in the world, including my own mother, would know that I made that movie. So at that point, I felt like, you know what? this is my film school. This is my masterpiece. And I don't mean masterpiece. Like this is brilliant. Like a Nolan movie. I mean, like, you know, I was an apprentice for fucking decade or more. 
And finally, I was like, I'm going to present my masterpiece to see if I can go up the next level. That's how it worked. You had the apprentice working under a master artist. And then one day, the apprentice would be like, I made my piece, my masterpiece, and this is for you to judge and tell me whether I can ascend or not. And that's what Red State felt like to me. Interestingly enough, so did Jay and Silent Bob Reboot. But Red State, when I felt like, you know what? This is it. Like, I've shown that I've learned how to do this. The guy who made Clerks, which is a fun movie to watch or listen to, but, like, tough to look at because it looks like a shot through a glass of milk, learned how to shoot a movie. Good for him. And I felt like that's the time to get out. Get out while you're feeling good. So for three years, all I did was podcast, tour, like, just do live shows. I wrote the book. We, You know, we had comic book men, the TV show going on. But I was convinced that I was done with film. Steve Soderbergh said he was going to retire. And I'm like, he's way better than me at the job. <laughs> this is he's what people, retiring. this is what everybody's doing now. We're quitting. This is what we do. And Quentin has also talked about No, I said quitting, not quitting. Oh, I said quitting. Quentin here is also a factor because he talked about, I'm only making 10 and getting the fuck out. Now, I remember he said to me at one point, he was like, directing is a young man's game. He said, directing isn't for old people, man. No, no such thing as a really good old director, he said. It, it belongs to young people. Wow. And I was like, well, he's fucking one of the smartest people I met in this business in terms of like great at what he does. He must know a thing or two about a thing or two. So there was a moment where I was like, I'm, I'm done. And then it was through podcasting, through an episode of Smodcast where me and Mosier wound up talking about this weird walrus story that suddenly I was like, oh, like, I would like to see this movie. You can hear it on a Smodcast episode 259. Me and Mosier sitting there building a fake movie by accident, same way like we would always fuck around on a podcast. <laughs> but you hear me get serious about it. Mosier fucking around and me going like, this could be a legit good movie, man. And then I was like, hashtag on Twitter, like, you think I should make this as a movie? Walrus, yes. You think it's a stupid idea? Walrus, no. And the next morning, <laughs> sea of walrus, yes. One walrus no. And the one walrus no said, I only said walrus no because I want to support the democratic process. I'm really walrus yes. <laughs> so at that point, I'm like, I should write this fucking script. And, you know, you should never ask the internet what you should do because they'll all, it's not like they're looking out for your best interest. Right. But in this case, it was in my best interest. Like, you know, suddenly I, I realized I got a chance here with my audience. They heard the initial idea. How often does that happen when a motherfucker is there for the moment of inspiration? Yeah. Generally, most people see the end product. Like, here's the movie, here's the TV show, here's the song once it's all produced. But they were there when I was like, wouldn't it be great if we made a movie about a guy who turns another guy into a walrus? So I felt like if I could bring that shit to life in front of the audience, like the audience of Smodcast, now that they've heard the idea, I could take this shit from cradle to grave and show them the entire filmmaking process not just like hey surprise i'm making a clerk sequel just like you heard about this walrus thing you wanted to see it i want to see it so i'm going to open source this fucker and you're going to see how a stupid ass fucking idea can become a movie and if i can do that with this idea then you should be able to do it with your ideas and stuff so yeah. that fired me up again man. and when i came back to filmmaking I didn't care about the things I used to care about. I didn't care about reviews. I didn't care about box office. And I'm not to say like, fuck all those people. It's just, it was no longer the primary concern. Oh. I've been in the game long enough to know that like what really matters is longevity. Like just like when Mallrats came out and flopped, you know, if that was the end of the story, then the lesson I would have learned is like, be careful, watch your step. Don't make bad movies or whatever the fuck. But as it turns out, 
it wasn't a bad movie to a bunch of people who embraced it. And now that movie is like one of the, the top favorites of all the movies I've ever fucking done and stuff. So at that point, you're like, I, I guess if I could just stick around, longevity will like, you know, if I'm here this long, at the point where we were doing Tusk, like I was like, I've been here doing this job for nearly 20 fucking years. Like from day one of being, you know, in, in making movies, being in the public eye, being on the internet mostly, because we were on online from like 1995 forward. Um, for viewskewed.com was like the website we opened at the tail end of 95. So I was interacting with the audience like from Mall, the end of Mallrats Fall. So after, you know, you, you do that for a bunch of years, like two decades and stuff like that. There's not a single fucking day goes by. Look, don't get me wrong. Lots of love. People said wonderful things about you. All the shit you want to hear, you'll see. Rip. But also all the shit you secretly dread someone will ever say also gets written. So for the last like 20 years, I've been like, you know, just tempered in raw shit. Like I've been told every day of my life, professional life, by some stranger that I suck at my job that I shouldn't be a director. People have said, people say that to you in person, never in person. I mean, very rarely in person, every once in a while, somebody will tell you they don't like the movie you made, but I can't think of anyone that ever told me face to face. Like somebody, somebody said to me once it wasn't, he waited in line at a convention while I was signing and I was just, you know, and he just got up there and he goes, Gene Hackman's the best Lex Luthor ever. And I go, yeah, I agree. And he's like, all right. Walked off. <laughs> I was like, dude, fuck, it's Gene Hackman. You know what the fuck? You know, it's like, but. Also, it's like, like, what a waste of your time at a con. Not your time. That person's time. Like, you're sitting there anyway and shit. But that person, <laughs> there's so much to see at a con. And they waited all that time just to get up to you to be like Gene Hackman. It wasn't that much time, Kevin. There was, you know, my line wasn't that big at the time. I could say it was, but maybe it wasn't as big. So, How long was the line? I don't know. I'm just fucking around. Easily 30 minutes. I've been to a comic book show or two in my day. Nobody has a line less than 30 minutes. So that motherfucker probably waited 30 minutes <laughs> just to make that comment. I had a dude come up to me at WonderCon in San Francisco at the um, was it Maisel Center or something like that. Moscone. <clears throat> Moscone Center. And I come down this escalators to go onto the floor. As I hit the floor, a bunch of people come around and like maybe five to ten with shit to sign and stuff. And, and it, this is pre-cell phones uh, everywhere. So there weren't a lot of like, let's take pictures. It was more, can you sign? Can you sign? So there was this one kid comes up to me, hands me, I'll never forget this. It was so fucked up. Like a free giveaway from the Marvel booth. It was like a, a daily bugle notepad that had Spider-Man on it. So like on one hand, you were like, why would the daily bugle put Spider-Man on their notepad? They hate Spider-Man, but obviously... This is not an incontinuity prop. It's a free giveaway to Comic-Con, and I'm overthinking. So I take it, and I'm signing it, and then the guy goes, I hand it back to him. He goes, I don't even know why I asked for this. I don't even like you. <laughs> and I was like, well, then you've wasted both of our time. Then I headed into the Then you kind of want to take it back from him. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, but at the same time, he spent his time. Like, to him, it was valuable use of his time to wait just to cut me down to size. And, oh. shit. and to his credit... Uh, you know, that was 15, 17 years you ago. remembered it. Still remember it, man. Don't know him. Don't know his name. He probably forgot the incident. <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know how many times I have to talk about this, but it's so important. If you're sitting there right now and you're stressed or you're anxious or you have a lot on your mind and you just bottle it up and you don't know what to do, it's going to come out. 
and it's not going to come out in great ways all the time. Um, BetterHelp has helped me substantially. Ryan here has been using it for a while. And, I, you know, don't you notice when you don't use BetterHelp? When you don't have therapy? Oh, the weeks where I miss a session? Of course, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's like the more you talk about something, even if you don't think you have anything to talk about, things come up and it puts your mind at ease. And we all carry around different stressors, you know, big and small. And at times we keep carrying them around rather than processing them and letting them go. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy from BetterHelp is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for all of us. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. I think people think, oh, what if I don't like my therapist? If you don't, you switch them. It's that easy. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com inside today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash inside. Inside of You is brought to you by Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. And look, hair thinning impacts a lot of us, myself included. In fact, over half of us will experience hair thinning at some point in our lives. It's not only common, it's normal. Join over 1 million people who are doing something about it with Nutrafol. Nutrafol helps support hair growth from within by targeting possible key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and even metabolism. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you stressed and shedding? Since having kids, have you started seeing a little more of your scalp? Has menopause impacted your hormones and your hairline? When it comes to thinning hair, there are many possible root causes at play, and Nutrafol helps address them through a multi-targeted whole body approach. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In Nutrafol's own clinical studies, 72% of men saw more scalp coverage after taking Nutrafol men's hair growth supplement for six months, and 86% of women saw improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol women's hair growth supplement for six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In Nutrafol's own clinical study, 72% of men saw more scalp coverage after taking Nutrafol men's hair growth supplement for six months, and 86% of women saw improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol women's hair growth supplements for six months. Take their hair wellness quiz at Nutrafol.com for a personalized hair health plan based on your specific possible root causes. With Nutrafol, getting help building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. You could see results in three to six months. 
take the first step to help you see visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter promo code INSIDE. Find out why 4,500 professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L, Dot com promo code inside that's neutrafall.com promo code inside but you said something a few times i don't know if it scared me but i don't know it's 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 interesting it's, there's a parallel here with me and you where you said you took a couple years off mm-hmm. now for me similar i mean you know i I, I, I just, I, I don't know what it meant me midlife crisis, whatever. I had a career. I'm, I'm doing things. I'm acting. Uh, it wasn't like people stopped calling, stopped knocking. I just was like, eh, I need a break from this. I don't know. Yeah. I just, I was a lead on this show called Impastor for two years and uh, I got good reviews and it got two seasons and it was fun. And then after that, I was like, you know what? I always wanted to try stand up. So I did six months of stand up and then I go, you know what? I want to make a band. I've always wanted to play music. I, I just really do. I love music. I mean, I might not be the best singer, but I want to play, make a CD. And all of a sudden, these things. And then the podcast. Some at first, somebody said, "Hey, you want to? Do, you should do a podcast. You got a good voice." I'm like, "Oh, is that the old joke? You got a good face for radio?" He's like, "No." You know, it's like, uh, and I go, "You know what? I'll try it." But not thinking of what I wanted to do it for, but just like, "I'll make some money." And then I realized, wait a minute, this is hard. And then I started to open up and be vulnerable and real and talk to my guests, like I and and, and say shit, so they open up like my dysfunction, my and so. When you're talking about, you know, and it's been about two and a half years. And so, you know, my agent's like, dude, you want, you want to stay relevant. You want to stay. And I, and I kind of go, and I, maybe it's cocky. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be, but I'm like, I, I just feel like I, I know, um, I know what I, I can do. I know my abilities. I know I could act, but I just didn't feel like it for a while. And you know, you don't want to miss the, you think that had something to do. What age did you start acting? Like, I mean, I did a play in high school and then I, um, that we'll see. They all my listeners have heard this, but when I did that play, it was the first. I was a loser in high school. I mean, anybody could tell you I was the shortest kid. And then when I did that play, popular kid was like down the hallway the next day. Hey, man, you were really funny in that. I'm like, oh my god. So not being me is the way to go. And a lot of actors think about that, and that's how that happens. So, but I wasn't getting attention home or anything. But this is the only attention I got was at a you know just getting instant. So a response applause. And so that, I think that's what happened with my life was like, I just needed that. I didn't know what the other thing was of real life being fulfilled. All I thought was, I need, I guess I just got to make people like me. I guess I got to just be funny. I got to be on. And then all of a sudden it got me to places. So I thought, well, that's the right way to do it. And then sometimes, well, what happens is at some point in your life, you go, you look in the mirror and I've done this and I go, I don't know who you are. I don't know who the fuck you are. I remember saying it. I don't have that one as much as this is the one I have. And my wife hates it because I tell her about it all the time. Usually it's like two, three in the morning and I'm leaving my office, which is one end of the hallway. And I go to my bedroom, which is the other end of the hallway. And my wife, Jennifer, we've been together 21 years. Um, so we have a lot of memories and shit. As you walk around the house, you know, she, every, it's, she calls it family wall. It's just, you know, fucking our lives writ large across this wall. And it's a lot of pictures of me with Jen and our daughter, Harley, Jen's parents who live with us as well. And every once in a while, when I'm leaving my office at 2, 3 in the morning, heading to my bedroom and shit, stop and look at it all, take it all in. And, and at first, I'm like, this is wonderful. What a wonderful life. And then there's this moment of disconnect where I'm like, who are these people? Because like, yeah. I, I, I don't live with anyone 
that I grew up with. Like, like I spent, I'm surrounded by four individuals that I did not know up until the time I was like 29 years old. And now I've known them all ever since. And one of them came out of my body partly and shit like that. But there <laughs> is a weird disconnect. Like I've never had like, who are you? I've, that's the one thing I've been blessed with. I, you know, I, I've hung around with people who know who the fuck they are because that rubs off on me. So I can figure out who the fuck I am. But, but many times I look at the life. It's very David Byrne talking heads once in a lifetime, which is like, this is not your beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. Right. Where just like, who the hey, fuck? you may ask yourself. Right. <laughs> so I know the feeling, but wait a second. So when did you get, what year, how old were you when you got Smallville? Well, when I was Smallville, probably got 26. But, and by the way, this is therapy. This is what it always becomes. It becomes therapy for me, the guests, listeners, whatever. But by the way, to tell you, I've always surrounded myself. In fact, any girl I've ever dated says, I think they date me because my friends, they're so grounded. They're so real. They're just right. good people. So I think that's what saved me. My friends, my friends and the people around me. And I feel like it's not that I ever felt like, you know, I feel like I'm a good person. I feel like I do things, but I just think I was like, Hey man, uh, you don't have to always be on. You don't always have to do these things. And you know what? Just because your age, you're going to make them happy if you do a TV show and you're going to make them happy to do a movie and everybody's happy, but then you got to go to work and do it. So be careful what you're doing. And this is your life. And it's not that long, man. You should know that. I mean, two years ago, your life flashed in front of in front of you, which I want to talk about because I know you've probably talked about ad nauseum, but there comes a time where you're like, hey, man, what what does it mean? And I know that sounds so cliche, but it's not about what it means. It's like, I want to go to bed. I want to die and go, I feel like I lived. Like I really just loved. I loved. I was loved. And, and, and I don't care what that takes to get to that point. Cause I just feel like I'm working on that. It doesn't mean I don't want to act. doesn't mean I don't want to, but right now I'm figuring all that out. This is what I think in regards to your case was 10 or 11 years on fucking small bill nine. Um, se I did seven seasons and I did 22 episodes a year. And that's a chunk. Like, you know, most people who consume television, you know, and happily do it. And of course, when the season ends, they're like, fuck, I wish there were 10 more episodes. They'd watch it every week if they could. There are shows that I would watch every fucking week. I wish it would never end and shit. But what a lot of people who consume media don't realize is like all those people, yes, they have jobs and they're great jobs. Nobody complaining. Money's oh, yeah. great and shit. But Very it's lucky. like you live your life in a cement block. Like, you know who really crystallized it for me it was um, Los. You know, Carlos from Flash? Yep. Um, so we were sitting around the set one day chit-chatting and he's a very introspective young man. He brought up like, when does one stop this sort of thing? Not like he don't want to be there, but he's just like, I, like I gave up my twenties. He's like, by the time this is all said and done, I will have spent my twenties up here in Vancouver pretending, you know, to be somebody else. And I love the people I work with. They're wonderful. But he's going, I'm never going to get my 20s back. Like, wow. And I, I was like, wow. Because all I ever have is Jason Mewes in my ear, who forever <laughs> has always grass is greenered it. And I'm sure he's done it to you, where he's just like, if I was on a fucking Smallville or a CW show, I would, he would be one of the supernatural kids, like ride or die for fucking 28 seasons and oh, shit. Yeah. He'd never bitch. He'd never be like, I got to find myself. He'd never be like, who am I? He'd be like, I know who I am. I'm the guy on the CW show. <laughs> so 
his mindset, like I always used to co-sign when he'd be like, somebody you'd read about somebody leaving a a TV show, like when David Crusoe fucked off from fucking, you know, that TV show and people were like, wow, man, why would he do that? (laughs) Jason, same thing, was always like, why would people like do that? But now, after, you know, as long as I've worked on my own ship, but really having gone up and worked on a few CW shows in Vancouver, like I go... And I'm there for like a month, like four, three to four weeks with prep and shit like that. And then when I get back to my world, I'm like, Jesus, like the world has gone on without me for a month. These kids, man, like Melissa been up in Vancouver since season two and like history in America going on down here the whole time. Right, right. And she's kind of not a part of it because she's in a big cement building. But now in her instance, she met love of her life. And, and so there's like a happy, more than just like, oh, I had a great job and people knew I was this person and I wanted to be an actress and I became a professional actress. She found her love on that set as right. well, which, you know, doesn't happen to everybody. By the way, I'll bring it up. I remember, it's funny you say that because your perspective is so different now. Because I, I remember many years ago and I read something where it said, you know, you said, you're like, Michael Rosenbaum's leaving small. But what, what the fuck is it? I mean, I remember you, you said it and I was like, Fucking Kevin Smith. What the, you know, and it wasn't like, it, wait, wait, I missed that. I said something. Who said what? Yeah. Like years ago. I, I don't remember when, but I remember when I heard, you know, Kevin Smith go said, you know, Michael Rosenbaum's leaving. What the, why is he doing that? Was he, it wasn't like, whatever. And I go, what the, what the fuck? Why is it Kevin Smith like me? Why is he bashing me for leaving small? And here, but by the way, and I, and, and, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but I was going, but I went through a, um, like a, like I've had back surgery. So I was going through a lot of pain cause I was doing stunts. We were doing a lot of our own stunts and I hurt my back. And I, I was like, I can't do this anymore. That was the real. And I didn't want, you can't tell that to a studio because they're like, well, liability, but they, you know, they offered me another three years and I, and I just was like, you know what? I need to just take care of myself and I need to. And then I got out, I had a surgery, it fixed it. I then went to, uh, I got on another show for a year. Then I did another show. And then I was starting to feel better. But I was really, for seven years, you're right. It was my 20s, early 30s. And I was grateful. We, but we were up in Vancouver, and it was raining all the time. And it's a beautiful place. I love it. But I think psychologically, also playing that character for so long, I did go a little crazy. I think I... So there's also that, too, which is something that, like, <laughs> nobody, particularly even myself, ever would have taken into consideration because... You know, you're like, well, he's, yeah, he's playing a bad guy, but he's playing Lex Luthor. <laughs> but seven fucking years of being like, hello, Clark. And you know? so not me. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I was like in a straitjackets and, and reading soliloquies and shit. I'm like, this is so the op. And Tommy used to laugh because he's like, you would just go and like fuck around, fuck around in action. And boom, you're going. I go, because if I'm serious all the time, I will jump off a fucking roof. I have to laugh. I have to be fun. That's how I have to work. Aside from mine, there must have been a fucking cacophony. Of, oh, yeah, you were. I'm just saying you're the famous one. <laughs> but aside from mine, was how much did you get of why the fuck would you leave? Like, who was the loudest? The fan base? Um, the people in your professional life? Like, you know, agents and shit like that? Or yourself? I think obviously yourself was the loudest voice because you got to fucking walk. It wasn't that easy of a decision, but I made a decision. I felt like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stories. You could say certain things when you're a certain age and you know, that wasn't necessarily the truth. But once you weed through all that, you know, you get through all that shit and you go, what was the real reason? And the real reason was I was done. I was physically done. I was mentally done. 
And I just was like, I thought I was just going to do comedy my whole life. And, you know, I, I, right off the bat, I did, you know, one sitcom that wasn't great for a year. I wasn't the lead, but then I did a, this thing called Zoe. I did a couple of shows and then a movie and I was like, comedy. I'm going to do comedy. I'm going to be like, or I did Urban Legend. I was up for like Private Ryan and things like that. Whatever, like little, you know, whatever. And I felt it. And then boom, catapulted, serious role, Lex Luthor, shave your head. 10 months a year and i think it just like it was like wow i can't believe i'm playing this character and it just i i wanted a little bit of escape i wanted to play something different i wanted to also like take a break and then just get my shit together and and try to and be funny and try to like do things that are lighter something that i would enjoy more as much as i love the crew i'd imagine on some level too you're like i just want to fucking grow my hair bro you know it's funny i did I, I would be like fuck i remember you know glenn glenn winter yes that's you, right. I, I mean, that's that's something when you mentioned like how they created the effects before, like when when I joined, I joined season two of The Flash. So they had already done seasons. I think that would be season three of Arrow. So the Berlanti verse had already been up for a few minutes, and all the people like in the producers and writing end of the show, like down here, like go out of their way, even though all of them watched smallville religiously all of them were like we don't do those smallville effects man like we're spending real money here we're doing real effects and whatnot you know because we're in the age of cg right when i went up there to work on the shows everybody who works on all those shows already worked on right smallville. and they had the I mean, they worked their asses off but imagine then there's just they're doing you can't create dust with cgi then you can't we were, we were playing with tech that people from Smallville built. There was a guy who like, we do one episode where somebody had to punch through a fucking door. And he's like, uh, he's like, you like this? Cause I was like, I've never felt this before. He's like, we invented this for Smallville. And I was like, you worked on Smallville too? And he's like, most of these cats did. Bob, one of my favorite ADs in the world who worked on both Flash and Smallville. I love Bob. Bob is a, one of my I loved favorite. everybody. I, they're all family to me. It was the, the, like, honestly, I keep in touch Wait, with Bob. You worked with Bob on Smallville? Bob, uh, a first aid dude's kind of like dry sense of humor, like, yeah, can we yes. do this? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right, because he talked about it. He's like, when we were on Smallville, one of my favorite things about Bob was one day we're sitting on set, and Bob is like the perfect AD, man. Fucking like, like keeps the train running. Dude's dude, also too. Let you play music and talk and shit like that. So at one point I was like, Bob, what'd you do before all this and shit? And he goes, uh, I was in the Canadian army. I, I jumped, out, jumped out of airplanes. I was like, you, you like, cause he's such a fucking singular thinker and his own man. Oh my God. I was like, fucking you took orders. And he's like, that's why I wound up in this job. He's going this job very much like the military. He's like, you take orders from above and you have to execute things on timely schedule. It's like, that's why we use military slang and talk in our business and shit. Right. So all the people that I met while working on Flash and Supergirl came from Smallville and they all had a similar story where they were like, you know, when they first got up here to do the Berlanti shows, like, you know, the first two seasons um, of, uh, of Green Arrow or Arrow, sorry. Right. You know, they were like, we're not doing that Smallville shit. No superpowers. There's not going to be any wind gags or anything like that. They're like, this is just a motherfucker fighting for justice with arrows. Then in season two, I believe they introduced the flash. And once the flash was introduced, all the people on flash are like, you know, they, they didn't want, they came from arrow as well. 
And they're like, nobody wanted to talk about air cannons ever because they're like, that's so Smallville. And they're like, now that's all we do. They're like, even Arrow right. uses the fucking air cannons and stuff like that. All <laughs> of the track that was laid by fucking a decade of people up in Vancouver going, how the fuck are we going to make this shit? Like, they're benefiting from right now, still yeah. to this day. It's nuts. Well, look, I, it was honestly, you know, I, I, I hate when people, it's, it's like the clerks thing. It's like, you know, uh, if you know, I'm sure people will say, you know, oh, well, what happened to his career after small, but whatever career after uh, chasing Amy or clerks, when you hit a home run and you're on something great, you can only go down. So anything uh, compared to usually those things, it's very, very difficult. So I look at it because I'm, I'm a lottery winner. I'm a lottery ticket winner. I may, I was a part of something that was brilliant. I say that all the time and I truly mean it. And the older I get and the more mature, which is not easy for me. That maturity comes this just with experience. It's not even whether you want to be mature or not. You live a long enough life, you have no choice. Well, I mean, obviously, we can think of very public examples, but it's not true. But it seems like the older one gets, you have no choice to get mature. So, of course, like I loved what you said before about like getting way past it and then looking back and having a different perspective when you were like why did i really do that yeah i've had that moment many times in my life where you do the thing in the moment and then you have to kind of recollect somewhere down the road when you when you're free of the blast and everything is where it needs to be in the present why did i really do that what was the reason behind that i want to get like you are where you could honestly go you know, get to the level where, cause for me, it's like, it's like, uh, it's the be all end all at times. Like I, you know, this has to be, I ha- it has to be great. I have to, my peers have to, you know, I have to uh, prove to them. I have, so I'm, I'm getting past that, but I want to aspire. Like you said, where you can go, I want to go make this movie because it's funny because I'm the biggest horror fan there is. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, you love horror. I'm just saying, I say that cause I really love, I watch three horror movies a week and, um, I, I I'm writing a horror series that we're pitching and I'll, I have like, this horror movie that came up and I pitched my agent, a couple of producing friends. And they're like, did you have to make that? Because you could either go and you could uh, go pitch it and you'll have no control or you can go, which scares me too. I don't right. need to have all control. I just like, I want to go shoot with my friends. You came to a point where you're like, Hey, I want to do this movie where I could shoot for $300,000 where at the end of the day, I want to have fun. And if we make something great, awesome, let's try and let's enjoy it. But I don't want to kill myself doing it. And if it's a success, if even if it's not a success, you, it's still a success because you made a $300,000 movie. So you've gotten to a point where you can actually go, let's go make that. And there's no pressure. And I really want that to be like the next thing. All you have to do is realize, I mean, this is going to sound so simplistic, but it's like the moment you make a thing, you've won. Like the end results, everything else is just gravy. Everything else is scenery and stuff like that. Everything else are asterisks and minor statistics. But like the moment you create a thing that is yours or aid in creating a thing that, you know, bringing art to life, bringing something to life that wasn't there before creation rather than destruction, you win. Like, it's that simple. Um, then there are degrees of like, you know, how, how many people know about it. That's, that's really, and, and of course, money. That's associated, I guess, with money. Um, the more people know about it, some assume, the more money there is to it. But those of us in podcasting know that that's really not the case at all. Uh, <laughs> you hear that, <laughs> you patrons? Can, you can have numbers out the wazoo, man. But what I found, yeah. like what, what podcasting for me was incredible for was, number one, just self-expression. Like, because I was like always like, oh, man, the great job would be a radio 
show hosts. It'd be so amazing to be Howard Stern and shit. And then mm-hmm. one day somebody was like, you can do a podcast. And I'm like, what? Like the Ricky Gervais podcast had happened. And Scott Mosier was talking about it. He listened to it. He's like, it's funny. They sit around. They just talk to each other. It's kind of like what we do on a commentary track. I said, then we should make one of these podcasts. And still to this day, I've never listened to the Ricky Gervais podcast, but it's the origin point of everything I do. Because I was like, well, Ricky Gervais is funny. He's just sitting around talking to his fucking friends. That sounds like a good life. That sounds kind of like what Howard Stern does. And so then you, you try it on and you're like, oh, this is rapturous because it's free self-expression. Not like I've got an idea and I need to self-express. Give me $20 million in Ben Affleck. It's like, hey, man, sit down. We're going to have a conversation. And you could showcase people who aren't fucking stars. You could showcase people who don't normally get showcased. Like, that's awesome. Smodcast for me was like, ladies and gentlemen, here's Scott Mosier, the guy who produces all my movies, who I think is fucking funnier than me. We're going to have this ongoing conversation. Um, here's Jason Mewes, ladies and gentlemen. You know him from those movies, but the real guy, way funnier than the fucking character. Here he is. Here's my wife. Here's my kid. Like <laughs> showcasing. It's fulfilling know, too. Yes. And you get to put those people up on a pedestal and then people understand about you as an artist a little more like, Oh, I can see where that person is an influence yeah. and stuff like that. But it's because there's no money. He's the sky's the limit. So the one, that's the thing that it always fucks with the dream, the ambition and shit is money. Um, the moment you can learn to ameliorate that, then the sky's the limit. So you just have to be able to pivot and pivot fucking hard. So you go into a place and you're like, we need $5 million to make this movie. And they're like, absolutely not. Nobody wants to give you five fucking million dollars. You got a choice. Either that fucking script sits in a drawer and you wonder if it ever would have worked or you fucking change your tactic. In my case, as the guy who made the fucking first movie was 27,000 bucks. And then I, my career came from that one dopey inexpensive movie. I'm always in favor of like, let's roll the bones with lower budget because if it works, it's a fucking lottery ticket. Everybody gets fucking rich. We all look smart. We got a story to tell about how nobody fucking believed in us, but we fucking hold our <laughs> Like all of it is gravy and shit. And if it doesn't work. And, and that's the, the choice, the only choice, because either you do that or the thing don't get made. And if the thing don't get made, Nothing has accomplished. Nothing has occurred. Like you're just stagnant. So I'd always rather like fucking risk it on way less money. I know like the people I work with are always frustrated because the moment they're like, you know, the budget is this. And I'm like, oh, let's just fucking, let's just drop this, this, this. And as a guy who's editing the movie and as a guy who's not very visionary and never has very expensive ideas, (laughs) even if I have a script, like, you know, we felt found this on Twilight of the Mallrats movie we're working on right now. Um, budget came in probably, let's say, a million two over what we wanted it to be, where we all felt comfortable where it was going to get greenlit and shit. You know, so they're like, what do we do? And in that instance, I'm like, well, I fucking got us into this trouble by dreaming up this stupid bullshit. Let me see if I can back us out of it as well. And you start going through the script and going like, all right, well, you don't need this. They don't need to jump through the roof twice. You know, once we'll be fine. And that takes off about $50,000 of a stunt day. And you just chip away at it until you can get down. Now, in the instance, that was an instance of like verified breathing where it's like, we got to bring the movie down by 1.2 million. That intimates that somebody's giving us millions of dollars to tell a fucking story. Most of the time, it's not the case. Most of the time, and when I say millions, mine are always under 10 at this point. Ain't nobody giving me 
fucking $10 million or more in this world anymore. So because I can like just reconstruct it to be cheaper, like that's, that's the key, man. Like, I, you know, my respect to, to Chris Nolan, but like that, you know, that's, that's Chris, Chris Nolan, Nolan. the director right. who's just like, I, in order to fucking do this sequence, we're going to shoot it forward and then we're going to shoot it backwards. And we're not going to reverse the film. That's cheap. We're going to shoot the sequence in reverse because that's a mind fuck and an accomplishment. And what are we doing in cinema if not trying to push the back? I love that. Good for him. And, and I fucking can't wait to see it. And I respect filmmakers like that. They're absolutely my betters. But I'm the other guy. I'm, I'm the guy that's just like, you know, that's good enough. Good enough has gotten me 26, almost 27 years into a very unlikely career. So for me, it's like good enough, man. If the shot is soft, it's good enough, man. That, <laughs> as long as that yeah. performance is singing, that's what's important. It don't have to look great. It don't have to sound great. It don't have to like break dimensions and barriers and, and fucking like- You know who you movie. are. That's the simple way to say it. You know who you are, what you can do, and I'm you're that guy if that's what they want. You're not Chris Nolan, you're Kevin Smith. This is what I do, and you know what you're gonna get. I'm gonna bust my ass, I'm gonna keep it. Everybody's gonna have fun. No one's gonna be screamed at. You know what it means too is that your phone don't ring a lot. Um, you know, I don't get a lot of calls where people go like fucking save us, direct one of these studio movies. We need your help. So, you know, in, in a world where I was waiting for that for that to pr practice my craft. I'd probably be out of this game long fucking time ago and stuff, but I've got the ability to generate my own material. So it's like, I don't have to technically ever wait for somebody to be like, you may make your art good, sir. Like now I'm at a place where I'm like, like if I want to do it, we're going to do it because none of the shit I want to do is earth shattering. It's not me going like, we're going to make Star Wars on a budget. Not at all. Most of the shit I want to do is stupid. It's like this stoner talks to this stoner like they did 30 years ago. So <laughs> Inside of You is brought to you by Neurohacker, Qualia Synalytic. Let me tell you something. If you haven't tried this, you are missing out. I just sent this to my mom. I have it. I use it. It's a product that I didn't, I, they weren't even my sponsor when I was using this. And I was like, wow, why do I have more focus or energy? Why do I feel better? Why do I feel different? It's because I take Qualia Synalytic, Neurohacker. Look, if someone would have told me, Ryan, that there are science-backed ingredients that could help me feel 15 years younger in a matter of months, I wouldn't have believed it. But uh, I tried quasi-senolytic, and the rest is history. As we age, everyone accumulates senescent cells in their body. Senescent cells may cause symptoms of aging, such as aches and discomfort, slow workout recoveries, sluggish mental and physical energy associated with that middle-aged feeling. Also known as zombie cells, they're old and worn out and not serving a useful function for our health anymore, but they could be taking up space and nutrients from our healthy cells. Much like pruning the yellowing and dead leaves off a plant, Qualia Senolytic helps remove those worn out senescent cells to allow for the rest of them to thrive in the body. And... You just take it two days a month. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all the ingredients together. And Neurohacker Qualiacinolytic has a 100-day money-back guarantee. Oh, I have, I have more energy. Uh, I feel younger. Uh, I'm more productive. I will tell you that. I'm more productive 
and uh, I feel like I have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more enthusiastic about my life. I definitely feel that. And uh, for me, the aches and pains are less lessened by this. So that is a real important thing for me. Help resist aging at the cellular level, folks. Try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com slash inside. Neurohacker, N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R. Neurohacker.com slash inside for up to $100 off and use code inside at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash inside for an extra 15% off your purchase. Inside of you is brought to you by Factor. I love Factor meals, Ryan. Do you know this? Yes. Why do you know this? Because I've seen them in your fridge and you've offered me some. And you've had them. And I've had them. And you love them. I do. Because I asked you every time. Mm-hmm. Um, Look, I spent an enormous amount of money using delivery services for food or going grocery shopping and never eating the food that I buy or too many leftovers. And it's just, I waste so much money. And, you know, Factor Meals has really changed my life in a lot of ways because they have so many different meals, like 35 different meals, more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. And it takes just two minutes. So it doesn't matter how busy you are. It's two minutes to cook this stuff. You always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. And that's what Factor does. Um, I, I, I just can't get over all the things they have, like filet mignon, shrimp, blackened salmon, um, their breakfast items, everything, dessert. It's, it's perfect for my lifestyle. And I think it's perfect for a lot of lifestyles. Um, yeah, you can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Keep kitchen time to a minimum. Factor meals are ready in two minutes. No shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. Warm, sunnier days are calling, Michael. Well, yes, they are. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. It's pretty incredible. Head to factormeals.com slash inside50 and use code inside50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code inside50 at factormeals.com slash inside50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Factor Meals. I mean, this is awesome. I could talk to you forever. Now, you know, the only time we ever really talked, we were at, in England at a con and you took me aside and go, dude, you're playing Martin X. I'm like, ah, it's a small role. It's, you know, that's me. And you're like, yeah, but it's like, it's one of the original, you knew everything. And I go, I wish I knew something to tell him, you know, but you're going to be in a sequel, right? I go, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what's, but it was so nice of you to kind of, you know, take me aside. And it was just like, I'd never met, you know, I was just like, I like this guy. I never met him. And uh, it was just like, when you meet somebody there, you just have a warmness to you that I was like, I, I want to work with that guy. He's just. He makes me feel confident. I honestly thank you. That means the world and stuff. And aside from just liking your professional work, I always fucking enjoyed you through Jason Muse, who is like, <laughs> you, you should be paying him like publicist. Rights. I love him. What a fucking he, heart uh, he of gold. sings your praise. I mean, again, he loved that show. And if he could, like, if, if you guys could still be fucking Clark and Lex, 
I bet she'd pay you to do it. In this <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> hey, by the way. And he loved the show itself, but he loved your dynamics. He's like, they're so good, dude. They treat it so seriously, man. It's just like fucking reading the comics and shit. You know and what? I was like, yeah. you wear a Superman suit? And he goes, in that way, it's not like the comics. No. But you know what? I got to say, um, thank God social media wasn't around. And thank God it was just, I, I didn't watch anything. I wasn't a huge comic book fan. Like I said, I'm a... I'm a horror fan, so for me, people always ask the question. I'm like, I got to be honest with you. I just, I wanted to learn my lines, and they were good lines, and and just be believable, and and grow, and show emotion, and just be real, and let the writers and the and the directors kind of, you know. And that's it. I just didn't. I, I go. I'm not gonna try and emulate. I'm not gonna try and be real fun. I, I just wanted to be real. That's it. Just be real. Let me ask you some inside baseball about Vancouver. Did you, did you stay at the Sutton for seasons one and two? Sutton plays season one. I got a houseboat season two on. Uh, the fuck? Seriously? It's a houseboat. Yeah, it was awesome. Colorful motherfucker. That's awesome. It was awesome. Houseboat. And then I lived in Kitsil. No other CW kids do that. I don't know, but it was the best thing you'd ever do. You wake up and there's a seal at your back door. I'm not fucking kidding. A seal. Oh, no, he's right. He's right. I mean, he ain't right. He ain't wrong, kids. They got fucking seals <laughs> it in It was. It was awesome. Well, you know what's genius? about that being on a fucking series and living on a houseboat like number one you're gonna get rocked to sleep every night so that's yep. kind of awesome yeah um, there's something pastoral and serene about being at one with the sea but you don't need that much space in your world like having an apartment or a house because what do you do you fucking wake up get in a car go to the fucking stage and you're there for the next 15 fucking hours and then you get to come home and crack and i'm sure if there were days where you're like Fuck, I just want to sleep in a goddamn hotel. You could just walk across the street, stay in a yeah. goddamn hotel. And I was, was a regular. A I was a regular at the aquarium. I mean, they knew me really? behind the scenes, brought everybody. I knew the ins and outs. I donate to them, whatever it was. All right. How many seasons were you on the boat? Oh, uh, just one. I should have kept it. I remember the dick the dick owls owned it. The dick owls. That was that. That was their name. I was gonna ask you because you said Jason Muse, and it brought me up a question, you know, an idea. When he was talking in the interview, and it was so good. And he brought it up when he was, you know, going through the addiction. It was like the, one of the last times he said, you were sitting in the car, picking him up and he started to walk towards you and you didn't even recognize him. And that was the first time he saw you cry. You cried. And that's, and it just, I remember I almost lost it because it was so emotional. I'm like, uh, just, I mean, to be fair, he's right. That was the first time he saw me cry. Uh, but now we're up to like thousand. <laughs> Why is that? Gets, and when I became a stoner in like 2008, <laughs> like I started wearing my heart on my sleeve and everything fucking touched me. That's how I even wound up directing The Flash because I was just watching The Flash and I shot a video of me fucking like bawling, crying at how good it was. And so my agent was like, you know, well, actually it was Jason's wife, Jordan. She was like, I, I called your boy Jordan, who's my agent, and said, call fucking somebody on Flash and see if, you know, maybe they'll let him direct an episode. He loves the show so much. And I was so mad at her. I was like, don't fucking do that. I don't need no help from the Shirtless Boy Network. We're doing fine over <laughs> here and shit like that. And then when they said, oh, we'd love you to come, I was like, thank God you said that. Oh, my God, we're going to go fucking direct the Flash and shit. You always, you work with people all the time where you, like, you have uh, people that you work with again and again. Is that because not only they're talented, but a lot of it has to do with comfort? Absolutely. You know? It's like, I know what they're capable of. And, you know, sometimes you're like, why am I just going to, like, elevate some stranger? Particularly the same fucking stranger that everybody picks for, like, 50 movies a year. <laughs> when I can elevate somebody nobody's seen. Like, when I wrote Chasing Amy, 
um, I, we were looking for $3 million to make the movie. And you know, we just set up an overall deal at Miramax and stuff. And so, you know, I was like, uh, I wrote this for Ben Affleck and Joey Adams and Jason Lee. Um, and, you know, they're people I've worked with on fucking Mallrats. I met all three of them on Mallrats, but they're capable of so much more and blah, blah, So uh, Meryl Poster, who's our exec at Miramax, lovely person, she was like, no. We're not going to give you $3 million to make a movie with people nobody have ever heard of. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, we, we have people we would like to, this good script, we have people we, in deals that we'd like to put into the movie. And I was like, oh, well, who? And they were like, uh, we're thinking David Schwimmer, um, Drew Barrymore, and a young up-and-coming comic who hadn't, hadn't had the Daily Show yet, John Stewart. So, you know, I'm like, all right, well, I get it. And I know they're famous or whatever fuck, but, you know, I, I wrote this for these three people. And I think they're really, like, fucking talented and people aren't overly familiar with their work. Like, no disrespect to Drew Barrymore, but, like, she, particularly at that point, she got all the jobs. Like, she needs another one, you know? It's like this person, like, number one, I wrote the character based on this person. But number two, it's like, how about we introduce somebody like fucking new and shit like that? So, you know, once in that instance, I dropped the budget down to like, that was one of the, that was one of the first movies I had to pivot on where we wanted 3 million and they were like, not with that cast. No way. Um, our cast, 3 million, your cast, we're not making the movie. So I offered to make the movie for 200 grand with my cast. And I was like, we'll make the movie. Uh, if you guys like it, it's yours. If not, you give it to us, we get to sell it someplace else. And they gave us 250 grand. We went off and made the fucking movie. So it was another case of like, just fucking shrink the budget. Fuck it, man. Like, we'll just do it by hook or by crook. But I'd rather, you know, stick with someone that I know or I believe in or, you know, I mean, let's say I went with their version of Chasing Amy and shit. Like, you know, obviously we all love Jon Stewart now. David Schwimmer, beloved from Friends and stuff, and Drew Barrymore, no slouch whatsoever. Got to imagine it might have gotten attention, maybe even more attention, because those people a little more fa famous or whatever the fuck. So it's not like that would have been the worst version of fucking Chasing Amy, but it's just not the one I had in my head. And because I stuck with, like, the version I wanted to make, and, you know, and it wasn't like, I'm implacable, you give me three million, or like I fucking bent hard where I was like, look, I, give me three million for the movie. Like, no, I'm like, I'll suck your dick. You know, like I dropped right down into the basement with like, give me 200,000 and shit. So Jesus. in that instance, I'm obviously amenable when it comes to the budget and shit. I was not amenable when it came to the cast, to the muses, not Jason Muse, but the people <laughs> who inspired the movie. Like right. Ben was Holden McNeil. Joey was like uh, uh, Alyssa Jones and stuff. And Jason Lee, I'd seen him. He'd been in Mallrats with us, but I saw him in my friend Malcolm's movie give this amazing performance, a movie called Drawing Flies. And I was like, oh my God, I'm underutilizing this uh, this kid. So I wrote him a much meatier part in Chase Gamey where he got to be funny and he got to be like, you know, like he got to act as well. So how was I rewarded for that? Ben Affleck became a major movie star and for a fucking good long stretch of my career, it's pretty easy for me to get movies made because I'd be like, well, I'm in it and uh, Jay Muse and, well, Ben's coming, you know, and they'd be like, here's the fucking money. And shit. 
Same thing with Jason Lee. Jason Lee went on to become a fucking movie and take TV star. Yeah. Um, and Joey, she got the Golden Globe nomination for Chasing Amy. So like, it's it was worthwhile. Absolutely. It wasn't just like you know I'm pig headed and I want my way. I was willing to drop the budget to do what we did, and it never occurred to me to like trade up. I see a lot of directors. I'm not like shitting on anybody, but I always see directors who like seem to work with whoever's hot like at the fucking yeah. moment and yeah. stuff like and, and nothing wrong with that it's fucking good business and shit everyone <laughs> loves movie star but like ron howard's that kind of guy like whoever's hot at the moment right like for a long stretch of time he was in the ron howard's next movie or something like that i i've just never it's not you like, uh, i'm not a heat seeker I'm, I'm i'm my heat i seek is more like now i know how to write for this for this chair in the orchestra like, I know how this motherfucker plays, so I can really fucking put a piece together, compose a piece, and conduct a piece that's going to sound like fucking magic, man. Now, you know, yes, if I put Eddie Van Halen in that chair, everyone's going to be like, holy fucking shit, it's Eddie Van Halen. But just because this cat ain't Eddie Van Halen don't mean that they're not going to fucking shred I love their it. instrument and stuff. That's brilliant. Um, let me, all right, this is rapid fire. We're just going to, this is honestly, these are quick. It's, Good luck. It, well, it's got, you know, it's got, you know, Hey, you know, rap it's rapid fire. It's called shit talking with Kevin Smith. These are like from my patrons. They're awesome. They're just so supportive of the podcast. They're asking some questions. So honestly, you could just be simple. You, you've probably heard some questions. So you I, I, just rapid fire. Kev. Yeah. He's got to change. He's got to make his hat. He's got to fix my hat. He's got to get the speed at which these questions are coming. He's got to get there. I don't want to be blown off. Uh, all right, I'm just going to fire him off. Lisa H., rumor has it, Mall Rats 2 script has been written. Can you give any details on the plot? Yeah, the plot is, uh, it takes place in the present, post-COVID. <laughs> COVID's part of it. It would have to be. Um, Brody Bruce uh, dealing with the, the death of mall culture. The original mall rat himself facing his own mortality, uh, along with the mortality of the fucking mall, the thing he loves most in life. Um, going on an adventure with his uh teenage daughter oh, i like that all right james r which superhero have you connected with the most and why batman for sure i don't know why because I'm, I'm not rich and i've never honed my body to physical <laughs> perfection and stuff and my parents like well my dad's dead but my parents were never killed in an alley my mom's still alive um but you know he's so romantic um on some level the idea of Unlike Superman, who is a god from another planet, you know, um, or unlike Spider-Man, who's bitten by a radioactive spider, you know, Batman is the achievable. You need a lot of money and you need a lot of time and a lot of emo, but, you know, it's just a guy out there, you know, trying to fucking make a difference or whatever. So I've always loved that story, even going back to childhood. Adam West was, you know, my first Batman. Um, and I've and, and the Neil Adams detective cover with Batman Crucified, uh, Joker holding that giant card. That was like one of my first comic books. So Batman been in my DNA forever, even well, though I don't identify with him one iota. Well, also Batman, the animated series, which I was voice, I voiced a few things in. That's how Harley Quinn, how, that's, your daughter was named Harley because of that. Batman, the animated series. I played a bunch of characters and I loved it. Andrea Romano directed what I loved her. Bruce Tim. Amazing. Uh, Mikey, what's been your favorite part about working with your daughter in movies? Um, you know, my favorite part about working with a kid is just like, um, you get a second bite of the apple to make pretend with your kid, you know, cause at a certain point kid grows up and you can't be like, Hey man, let's fucking play dolls. Like you missed that window, that window closed. And, you know, we played all throughout her childhood, like 
luckily I had a job that afforded me a lot of fucking time around my kid as she grew up and stuff. But at the same time, you know, bittersweet at, at a certain point, it ends. Like I always talk about this one story with her where like, I remember we were playing hide and go seek in uh, my bedroom. And you know, there's only like fucking three places at best to hide. And we've been playing it for over 20 rounds. And she was like, again. And I was like, Oh, kiddo, there's nowhere left to hide, man. Why don't you go see Nan and pop for a little while and stuff. And, um, you know, she did, you know, she went off to see her, her, her grandparents her downstairs at the house. <laughs> I remember like, feeling like hearing Harry Chapin Carpenter in my fucking ear singing about the cats in the cradle and shit. Oh, forget and, it. Um, like, you know, your kid wanted to fucking play with you. I thought about it as she got older. I was like, there's that one day where I was like, oh, kiddo, like go see Nan and Pop. We'll, we'll play hide and seek tomorrow. And we never played hide and seek again. And I blinked and the kid was beyond the age of hide and seek. So, you know, I felt like, wow, I fucked up. Like, even though that song existed and shit, you know, I fell prey to the bullshit. Like sooner or later, uh, you know, girl you're just like, oh, there'll be time like later me. and time fucking Girl was just like me. Don't make me fucking cry, though. You're gonna make me cry. But and but the thing is, being on set with her makes up for that. Like suddenly, you know, I'm an adult, ah. she's an adult, but we are making pretend. It is like she's a kid again, where it's like, oh, you stand here and fucking say this. I'm gonna stand here. Well, I'm not going to say anything, but like, and Jay is going to be this guy. Go. That's so, cool. The most gratifying. Yeah. That's fucking cool, man. Carly Teague chasing Emmy was a beautiful love letter to being young and in love and in the endless possibilities of, and fluidity of romance. Have you ever considered revisiting the topic with characters in their thirties or forties? Um, no, no. Cause chasing Amy was, I love chasing Amy is a wonderful movie, but I had to go through painful fucking shit. To make chasing Amy. You were dating Lauren. Uh, Amy. Yeah, Joey Adams, yeah, Joey Lauren Adams. Yeah, we were dating. That's kind of the movie's kind of based like a little bit on our relationship to some degree. Was it hard uh, dating someone who's the lead actress in your movie? No, it was wonderful. Um, I, I think it, it got hard after the movie came out um, because you know suddenly we were every piece of press we were doing was together. And, you know, the story was just like the director and his girlfriend, the star of the movie and stuff. And, you know, for me, that's great. Uh, for Joey, you know, I'm sure she, at a certain point, as much as she, I know she loves Chase Gaming, loved the role and, and stuff. But, you know, she didn't come to this business to be an appendage. You know what I'm saying? Like, Chase Gaming was, even though she got nominated for a Golden Globe and shit like that, you know, it was, I, I got a lot of attention for the movie because it, was, it had a nice little comeback story to it. Like, Mallrats was, should have killed him, but oh shit, who knew he had this in him and stuff. So that played a part. I remember, like, Joey told me, like, she went to a meeting at ICM um, and the agent she met with was like, are you still dating Kevin Smith? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, how long do you think that's going to last after this? And she's like, what do you mean? And he's like, oh. and, you know, I remember she came home from that meeting. She told me, I was like, number one, fuck ICM. Don't be rep there. <laughs> um, but number two, dude wasn't wrong. Like we wound up breaking up shortly thereafter and stuff like that. Um, so I always say that our relationship was sacrificed on the altar of chasing Amy. We had a cool little relationship, but then it became fodder for the movie which you know i i never regret because it was for her you know i was of course you know i was head over heels for joey 
And Joey's dream was to be taken seriously as an actress. She was, her first role was, you know, she was the girl who took Bud Bundy's virginity on, on Married with Children. And she was like super tight with Parker Posey and Parker Posey the year before had done um, Party Girl and like fucking broke huge and every, you know, every magazine newspaper wrote about her. She was like, like the girl of the year and stuff. And, you know, that's what Joey came out to be and stuff. And so, you know, we were in a relationship and there's a line in that Dire Straits song, Romeo and Juliet, where Mark Knopfler sings, I, I dreamed your dream for you, so now your dream is real. Remember I hear that, I always think about Joey and Chasing Amy, because that was her dream. And like, you know, I, I was like, all right, I'll fucking dream your dream for you. And it became fucking real. So it was you know, it was beautiful. Like everything that I've only positive things came out of dating Joey, including the movie itself, Chasing Amy. But since the movie became the basis for the stuff in the movie, it was a little too close to the surface. And, and, you know, just eventually shit broke down pretty, you know, not too far. Let's see, January of 97, we were at Sundance with Chasing Amy in April of 97. It came out in theaters. And then we broke up in July a few months later and stuff. And we had dated for like a total of two years. But, you know, I can never feel regret about the relationship ending. You know, I'm in a marriage and I've been married for years and happy and she's in a marriage she's happy too. But more importantly, that little snapshot of our entire fucking relationship and the dynamic, because I was very much like Holden, very like jealous and shit um is preserved like you know and and it also gave both of our careers like an incredible boost and stuff i'm so so, yeah well i'm so glad when i said rapid fire that for that question you fucking (laughs) no i am i am because if you would have rapid fire that because that was beautiful that's a beautiful it's like this it, it just will live forever you know that moment it's a moment in time it's a beautiful thing it's just i'm i'm glad thank you for that Last one, Jason W. Kevin, I wanted you to know your heart attack motivated me to see my doctor as I had been sick for about three months. I changed my diet, began exercising. By June, July of 2018, I no longer had congestive heart failure. Thank you, brother, for being my motivation to make changes. That fucking rocks. I mean, the heart attack, uh, many good things that came out of the heart attack, one of which was like, I went vegan and wound up dropping a bunch of weight and fucking my cholesterol dropped. And, and it's like, yeah, I'm in truly, I'm not in great shape, but I'm in better shape than I've been like almost my entire fucking life. Um, that was a positive that came out of it. The perspective, once that happens, you're like, now you don't, I don't wait for anything. Now it's like, we ain't got time. We got to go because fucking tomorrow I might drop dead and shit. Um, but the side benefit, has been, you know, because you go out there and tell the story and stuff. And I was I was on like Colbert told the story, a bunch of talk shows and whatnot. Um, and the story gets out there and people like aside from like, you know, entertaining people for a bit. And it's a good story because, you know, if I'm telling it, it means it ended yeah. well. Right. Um, but the wonderful thing has been so many people and I mean, an incredible amount of people over the course of the last two and a half years have told me a very similar sentiment where they were like, your shit scared the fuck out of me. And cause you're not much older or younger than me, or I look exactly like you or fucking, I live exactly like you eat the same shit. Um, I'm sedentary. I'm like you, I don't fucking work out, whatever. 
those cats saw it as a, a wake up call, like, which is incredible because I, you know, for years people have been telling me, do something about your weight or whatever. And my wake up call was literally like, you know, I was this fucking close to dropping dead. So it's nice that people out there took my wake up call as their wake up call. So when I hear that, like, I like, you know, I, I don't really have existential moments and stuff other than when I'm like, who are these people? And I look at the frame pictures on the wall of my house. Hey, hold on. Shut up. Thank you. I hear that all the time. No worries. Um, you always wonder, like, you know, I've, I know I served myself in this life. You know, clerks is fucking like, I've, that not a day has gone by since 1993 that I haven't said the word clerks and stuff. Um, everything kind of worked out professionally, even personally, things worked out and stuff. But you wonder, like, you know, if I wasn't here, did did the world benefit? Would it have changed? And because of, like, aside from the movies, people are like, oh, yeah, I like those movies. Without you, there wouldn't have been a clerk. It's like, never mind that. Me having a heart attack and talking about it, like, made a lot of people fucking, like, check Wake themselves up. and literally save their lives. So, you know, at the end of the day, like, I felt like, right on, fuck whatever else I did. Like, you know, when was I ever going to save a fucking life? You know what I'm saying? Like, I ain't Batman. And yet in that way of going like, hey, I almost died. Here's a funny story. But you should fucking take it seriously because I'm not that old and I almost fucking dropped dead. Because that bunch of motherfuckers are above ground today. That makes me feel Buddy. I mean, that's what I mean. The, the show, it's like just little things like not big things like that. But when you say when you tell your story, it's just it's amazing how I had no idea the impact. Like just whoever listens, when they hear that story, it might just give them a boost to be like, hey, you know, it's that's it. When you see somebody who has so much fame, so much success and well, you're self-deprecating. So you'll talk about the bombs as well. But like you see that and you're like death will go. It, it, it goes after anyone. It doesn't matter who the fuck you are. He's successfully shooting a movie. He's doing something at a club and he's gone. Sumner Redstone just passed away. Uh, you know, made it into his 90s, but like Sumner Redstone controlled Paramount, Viacom at one point, one of the richest men in the world, a multi, multi billionaire and stuff. It don't stop the inevitable. Like you can't buy off death or anything like that. So take care of yourselves. He sure certainly did. He made it well into his fucking 90s. But take care of yourself. It's always worth spending an extra buck or two to look in on your health because, you know, I know it's tough financially in the world and sometimes you got to figure out whether to pay fucking rent or food, but neither of those things matter anymore if you check out. So always take the extra buck if you have to. Spend it on yourself, man. Like you do for so many people in this fucking world. You do for your parents. You do for your boyfriend, girlfriend. You do for your kids. You do for strangers. You do for friends. Do for yourself. Look in on your your own health. Just make sure everything's okay because you never fucking know. Dude, you're glorious. I, I can't thank you enough for your time and uh, your insight. It has been absolute fun. We can do it again anytime you want. Well, I'm going to hold you that now. Come on, fucking podcast. We don't do pictures. Dude, stuff. I'll do whatever you want. Come on. Done and done. I'm around. You tell me. That way I get to interview the, you the whole time. I love that. You can ask me anything. I get. I get. I can get deep. Sweet. <laughs> Dude, all my love, all my health, love to your family. Be safe. Thanks for coming on. And give my love to Jason. I will pass it on, man. Thank you. Excellent talking to you. It was a great time. You too, man. It was awesome. Just a good guy, right? Just a really nice guy. Had a lot to say. Had a lot to say. That was one of the episodes where, uh, and you know me, I'm a yapper. I, I didn't yap much. 
No, it's sort of like... Uh, let the man who knows what he's talking about... He just goes. Let, let him go. He has a lot to say. He's interesting. He's very smart. He's incredibly humble. He's got great stories. Let him go. It was easy for me. I just sat back and go, yeah, dude, great. I love this. Keep it's talking. E- it's easier for me, too. Mm-hmm. It sure is. Yeah. Are you? What are you saying, fucker? <laughs> it's easier for me when you shut the fuck up, Rosenbaum. Sorry for the F-bombs. I normally don't do as many F-bombs, but I did some F-bombs. Also, make sure uh, if you if you really love the podcast and you're a fan uh, and you want to support it even more, we have the lovely Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You go to patreon.com slash inside. I've got a wonderful community. There's so many people there that have become friends. Uh, there's message boards. There's uh, inside of me where you ask me questions. There's, and I dress up as another character asking me the questions. Um, there are shit talking where certain tiers get to ask the guest questions. There's uh, live YouTubes where, you know, we just have a little concert on a Sunday. Uh, tons of fun stuff for patrons, and it's a great family, and I think you'll really enjoy it. And if you want to uh, support the show in an extra way, great. If not, just you listening is enough. Uh, once again, thanks for listening, and please subscribe. If you like the podcast, if you enjoyed it, please subscribe. Tell all your friends. Email them. Tweet. Instagram. Our handles are at, in, at Inside of You Podcast on the Instagram and Facebook and at inside of you pod on Twitter. Uh, if you want to leave me a message, I check them every couple of months because I don't have a, a big team here to help me, but uh, hello at inside of you podcast. You could leave messages. I'll eventually get to them. Whether I get back to you, it just depends. If you're saying, Hey, love the show. You know, if you have a two page email to mm-hmm. me, uh, you know, it's not going to be, you know, it's hard to read two page emails. It's like, just try to say it in a, in a, in a paragraph. How about, a, how about a sentence? Is that, is that, is that, is that a lot? I mean, I know, look, people write letters and I read them and I love mm-hmm. them, but sometimes, you know, these message boards, it's just easier if it's, I have ADD. It's okay to edit some posts. Yeah. Edit write your, write post. your feelings and then, you know, right. Let the English teacher and you guide you. That's right. And I don't remember English class. Uh, remember the inside of you online store, uh, 15% off. If you use the code Rosie pants, R O S E Y pants, P A N T S Rosie pants one. 15% off um, brand new tumblers that are badass and flip-flops and mugs and autograph mugs and beach towels. I've given Ryan most of this shit. Uh, and don't forget the stage it October 24th. It's coming up in just a few days, and that is Halloween time. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Rob and I are dressing up. We're going to play music and some covers and originals, and uh, there's prizes. You win Zooms and a bunch of other shit. So join us on stage it. Go to stageit.com. And just type in Rosenbaum and Danson, D-A-N-S-O-N, and you'll see two shows, Pacific Standard Term. Uh, let's give a little bit of love to uh, the people who deserve some more love, and that's my patrons. And uh, I love saying their names. Nancy D., Mary B., Leah S., Trisha, Sarah V., Little Lisa. Little Lisa. You kick out. How are you, mate? I got to bring that character back to the Patreon. Hello. Yeah, mate. So, uh, like, uh, let's bite. You haven't seen that one yet, have you? All right. I got to show you that one. Jill E. Brian H. Where have you been, Brian H.? Man, I haven't talked to you in a while. I know you uh, walked into a store in um, Azusa, my buddy at uh, Chaos Records. You walked in with an inside of you shirt and a hat and a mask. And I was like, yeah. He's like, hey, your buddy's here. Lauren G., Nico, Angelina, G. Lee, Robin S., Jerry W. Jerry, how's the movie? Emily. Bob B, Robert I, Jason W, Stephen J, Kristen K, not to be confused with Kristen Crook, Amelia O, Allison L, Jess J, Lucas M, Raj. Raj, where are you, Raj? Raj? Raj want to stage it. He uh, he was a, the big bidder 
Ooh. top bidder on stage it so he had a bunch of shit but he gave a lot of his shit to marissa and another patron part of the team rug flask thing you don't know that that's an inside <laughs> joshua d emily s cjp samantha m hamza b jennifer n jackie p stacy l carly h jennifer s janelle b carrie b tab of the 272 not to be confused with tab of the 273 kimberly e crystal h mike e marissa nanirello ramira beth b santiago m sarah f chad w leanne p russian w ray a maya p maya p megan j maddie s tiffany i kendrick f ashley e margie m thomas t matt w belinda n benjamin r lisa j kevin v robert s james r chris h snow r sean v anusha w osborne osborne h dave h spider-man chase sheila g jacob h misha h william h the new patrons thank you for joining thank you to everybody this is uh i hope you had a good time listening to this podcast and listening to kevin smith and next week's a huge episode so please tune in Thank you for allowing me to be inside of each and every one of you from uh, my uh, house in in uh, undisclosed location, in undisclosed Hollywood Hills location, along with my engineer uh, friend uh, slash uh, editor mm-hmm. um, extraordinaire uh, Ryan. Me. See you guys. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.